Okay, well, we're back. Uh, it's been a little bit of a while. Um, a little bit of delay because of some minor health issues. I've just had this excruciating back pain, so my mind has not been in the game to sit and talk for an hour and a half. Yeah, I hear you. I've kind of had the same thing on my side with a fractured wrist and stomach still bothering me for some reason. Don't know why, but I, I may have to go get that checked out again to figure out what's going on. We're beaten up, but we're here. <laughs> yep, we're here for you guys. Um, so we're the walking wounded, but we're ready to roll. So that's perfect. And today's episode is on Isaac Asimov, for those who didn't uh, listen to the last episode. Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. Um, also, another thing that's changed since the last time we recorded, we have a new host for our podcast. Um, we switched to Fireside.fm, which is run by Dan Benjamin who's one of the hosts of actually many shows, but um, Back to Work, a show that Lamb and I both enjoy considerably. And uh, I couldn't be happier with the change. Uh, what about you, Lamb? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, there was talks of Fireside for a really long time. Um, and when, because there was so much hype surrounding it, I was, I was scared um, that it wouldn't live up to the expectations, but uh, it's, amazing. It's probably, <laughs> I wish we had discovered it early on. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where we kind of had to go through the pain of the other services in order to figure out what a good service was. And Fireside is definitely that. And even if, even if we had the opportunity, we wouldn't have been able to, cause it didn't exist yet. Technically we are on the beta. True. That's true. Yeah. I, I think now they've gone fully public. And by the way, we are not being paid just to say any of this stuff. We just really like them, and we wanted to uh, give them a shout-out because they've been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a testament to somebody making a product that actually uses the product. Um, Dan, being a podcaster as well as a coder, um, he knows what you need on the back end. And it's made what you and I have talked in previous episodes, actually, about how difficult and how much of a pain podcasting actually is on the back end um sure. there, there's no real plug and play solution like there is you know like with youtube even you know like you want to make a video you could record right on your phone uh there's a there's an app that youtube makes that is called capture i think that mm -hmm. boom just uploads right for you it takes the pain out of everything there's nothing like that for podcasting and fireside yeah. is the closest that you can get um they've really just streamlined so many of the, the things that were a pain for me. Plus, they've added features we didn't have before. I mean, our statistics, being able to look at our numbers and stuff like that is things we couldn't see before. All we could see was numbers. We couldn't see um, countries, cities, states, um, demographics. None of this stuff was available to us before. Well, not only that, um, and this is something that um, all of you fledgling podcasters out there should really take note of when it comes to Fireside, is the dramatic jump in exposure that we got from Fireside. Um, that that still shocks me to this day, <laughs> you know. And so, so from a pure statistical analysis um, uh, of the amount of reach that we get, that's also pretty dramatic as well. It's really, really cool. Yeah, their their SEO tricks, whatever they're using, are incredible. I mean, yeah. we, we went from. A pretty predictable um, amount of downloads, you know, from uh, the audience that we already had, numbers that we were used to seeing to, at this point, I would say, uh, triple. Um, 
and not only triple but continually growing. I mean, it's been a it's been over. I think it's about a month and a half since we did the last episode. Yeah, and um, we switched to Fireside in between then. Um, so an episode that had already been available through iTunes, uh, two two episodes that had already been available through iTunes, that were already pushed to our social media, that were on the other host. So it had already had the maximum exposure that we could have previously were added to this uh, service when we changed over and we've had triple the numbers that we have on our initial exposure. So technically, I guess we're quadrupled. Um, And not only that, it's every day we're still getting more and more hits. So whatever they're doing on the back end, it is obvious that it's done out of love. And uh, we're, we just couldn't be happier. And that's, I, 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 Lamb and I had talked previously. We wanted to really express that in the show because not only for Fireside, but like Lamb said, for any of you fledgling podcasters or seasoned podcasters, it's awesome. And if it can make your life any easier like it did for me on the back end, you should check it out. Yeah, and and that's just the, the, the I guess the brass tacks when it comes down to it is the service works and it is probably the most comprehensive solution um, out there uh, for a one-stop shop that helps you to produce a podcast and then get it disseminated to the rest of the world. It's really cool. And I, I imagine the way that uh, Dan's mind works, it's continually going to be growing and they're going to keep adding. And I don't know, I'm, I'm excited to see where we're going to go with this. It's cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's it's refreshed my enthusiasm for podcasting. You know, the back end stuff is such a pain that it gets it gets tiring, man. It really yeah. does. It. That's why uh, in the last podcast I mentioned that we weren't going to be um, editing these podcasts anymore. They're just going out as is uh, because that stuff is exhausting. It really is. Going through and listening for ums is not the funnest thing in the world. <laughs> And now, and now, at least from that perspective, like uh, we've we've seen uh, a lot of people don't edit their podcasts. I didn't really realize that until until you had made that on the that statement on the previous podcast. Going through and listening um, to a good number of the podcasts that I personally like, I realized that most of them aren't editing. Yeah, I, and I imagine and I imagine it's probably for the same reasons as you. Like it's just a monumental pain to do it. <laughs> what inspired me to like give it up, give up the ghost, basically, was Tim Ferriss. And I mean, his show is one of the top podcasts on there and he doesn't do it because he sure. ba- he's basically said he said to himself when he started like if i'm gonna do this it's gonna be something that i can just do that's not gonna require you know laborious amounts of work sure. and and his show i i couldn't imagine doing i mean our show is about an hour and a half his show sometimes runs three three and a half hours yeah listening to that over and over again listening for ums and pauses and oh i can't imagine oh, you you would kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it very long. I, I think that's why a lot of people, you know, they say that most podcasts, if you look, never make it past like three episodes. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you get to a point where you're like, oh, "This takes all the fun out of it." Yeah, audio's well, I mean, tough. You got nothing else yeah. to run off of. Well, I mean, I guess that's that's you know, in in order to ensure the survival of our podcast, for example, I think that one of the smartest things we ever did was, um, you know, going from weekly to to monthly, 
just because it allows us so much more time to be really thoughtful um, about the podcast itself versus just trying our best to get them done. You know, the, the, the love goes away really, really fast when it becomes something that you don't look forward to anymore. And I think that the, the decision that we made makes it so that we have a lot more breathing room. Um, and so because of that, the love comes back. And not to mention the fact that this new format, I couldn't imagine having to <laughs> pull our resources uh, on a artist or however you want to say it, a person of focus every week. Uh, uh, no, no way. There's no way we could do it. It just wouldn't be possible. You know, if we were if we were making money off this podcast, you know, enough that this was our job, maybe, maybe I could dedicate my week to doing that every week, and that would be a cool thing. You know, because it would just require us reading. Sure. <laughs> but right now, that's just not feasible when there's other things in life called, you know, bills. Yeah, bills and health and all the rest of that stuff. And lately for both you and I, those things are kind of interlinked too. So our health creates more bills. Right. Oh, and another thing about Fireside that probably is worth mentioning is it's really, really reasonable. It's f- Yeah. It's $15 a month. And that's unlimited downloads so basically most of your guys out there um i don't want to mention any of their names because i don't want to be talking about them behind (laughs) their back but most of your other hosts out there i'm not going to say all because i haven't looked at all of them but most of them out there they they have tiers so you know if you have a certain amount of um downloads this is the tier you're on and then after that other ones run on um the size of your episode you know so if you if you have a uh 80 you have 80 gigs available or 80 megs available sorry um then if you need a longer podcast you have to go to the next tier which is the host we were on was like that this is 15 bucks a month for unlimited downloads and whatever size episode you want you pay by the podcast so like it's it's 15 dollars. if we wanted to do a second podcast like um say i wanted to do a solo one or lamb wanted to do a solo one um then we would pay $34 and that's for three podcasts. There's no two podcasts here, but it's, it's incredible. The, the difference and it's just the unlimited download thing is just unbelievable because originally it was, I think they were going to set it up to where if you hit a certain number, then you had to move to the next tier, but, sure. the, but they figured out something on the back end that made it not matter. So they just got rid of it and said it's unlimited for everybody. Which is really nice from the perspective of you don't want your success to kill you kind of thing, like with some of the other services and the amount of downloads. I mean, you just end up you just end up spending more um, on, on having more exposure and having more downloads. And that kind of defeats the purpose of getting the exposure in the first place. You know, for both guys like you and I, for example, it's it's a labor of love. And we we do this because we love to do it and we want to, to talk about the things that we want to talk about. But can you imagine if every single click on uh, or every single download cost us money? That would just be that would be so counterintuitive to what we're trying to do. Yeah, well, I mean, you remember this, but nobody else knew about this. Uh, there was a certain point where um, our space or the amount of uh, megs that we were allowed to use on our previous host, um, we were reaching the limit of that when we were doing weeklies. And there was a period of time where we had to, uh, our fourth episode, I had to watch the timer (laughs) while we were talking and make sure we ended in time so that our episode was small enough that we could still upload it. So I was, uh, we were actually cutting our conversation shorter than it needed to be um, 
to fit into the plan that we're in. It was, and that's not the way to do something like this. I mean, they at this point they really should be paying us for this because I feel like we're doing the best infomercial in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should reach out to him and send him a link to this episode. <laughs> Basically, we're just. If you've been around long enough before this new format, you know that we love talking about things that are, uh, I guess the best way to say it is we love talking about things we love. Yeah. And and right now we're both loving Fireside. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe before we go into Isaac Asimov, which I'm really excited to do, um, maybe would take maybe five, ten minutes of anything else you want to, that you're loving right now you want to talk about? Um. Huh, that's interesting. Um, I just marathoned um, the last two seasons of The Walking Dead, um, and wow, is that brutal. Um, so for anyone who has seen the last season um, and didn't think that The Walking Dead could get more brutal, well, it is absolutely more brutal. And um, I actually really, really like that they s- stayed true to the brutality of the comic book. Um, you know, I'm not one of those guys who who is crazy about maintaining consistency with source material like Game of Thrones, for example. I realized that the books and the, you know, the the show is very different or Harry Potter. I realized that there are just some things you can do in a visual medium um, that you can't do in a written one and vice versa. So I'm actually happy when you can keep true to the source material without hurting yourself in the narrative that you need to tell within the given medium. So The Walking Dead, I think, so far of any of the shows that um, have have done, or even movies for that matter, has done a fantastic job of maintaining that level of consistency and brutality. So that's really, really cool. I'm into that right now. That's a show I have not even started yet. So that's that's a whole lot of zombie waiting for me. Yeah, try not to marathon it. You will be hopeless um, and, and, and... and just morose for, for weeks on end. So if you're going to do it, it take it on an episode or two at a time. <laughs> I don't think I could do that right now. Anyways, with this back issue and all this stuff, like there's a certain amount of, uh, brutal material that I can, I can only handle so much. And then I need to like dip into something that makes me laugh. Like it's just it, so much of, you know, when you're dealing with back issues, so much of it, um, depends upon your mood because you're talking about muscle tenseness and how that affects whatever your injury is. Um, sure. So, watching things like, for example, I'm I really lo- have been loving House. I'd never watched House MD, the the doctor show before. Oh, uh, it's a great show. Yeah, I love it. But I can only watch like a couple episodes every few days because it stimulates hypochondria. You know, mm-hmm. you're watching somebody choke uh, something in their throat, and then you have pain in your neck, and then all of a sudden you're having images of that close up of that person choking on, you know. So it's 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 been a struggle just on that. So what I've been loving lately, personally, is just actually sitting and drawing in my notebook, which is something I don't do often enough. I've I've literally um, I've got to the point where I look at my phone like three times a day. That's it. Like I actually put it down and put it away. Huh. Do you have a go-to funny thing like a show or something like that, that, that brings you back? Um, there's a few, but like my, my, I guess you could say my safe show. The, the one that's always like what I've been watching before I go to bed, which is something I've seen hundreds of times. And I know you have too. is Star Trek, the next generation. Oh yeah. 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 It's Mm -hmm. just, it, it, it's I, I don't have to really pay attention to it because I've seen them so many times from when I was younger. So mm-hmm. I can put that on right before I go to bed and I'm going to pass out. I, you yeah. know, 
Yeah, Crystal's got the same thing with Futurama right now too. She basically throws on an episode of Futurama before she goes to sleep every night. It's yeah, it's it's a weird thing. I've never been a person to go to sleep to the television. Mm-hmm. Um, but just uh, lately with the trying to take the focus off of my back and all of that, it's it's helpful. Um, just giving you some, another piece of stimulus, almost like purposely overloading your brain. Sure. But Interesting. Anyway, Anyways, other than that, um, it's been, you know, I think I was thinking about this in the shower. In a way, this episode, Isaac Asimov, is the antithesis of the last episode on uh, David Lynch. With David Lynch, you and I had seen every movie he had made. I had even read a book on, uh, he had written. uh, Isaac Asimov, that's completely not possible for either of us to have done. Uh, you, you know, it's funny that you say that because I, the, the one thing I was going to bring up was that I feel like because we're such different consumers when it comes to, to creative stuff, I feel like we've read entirely different things from Asimov. Oh, I mean, and it, for those who don't know this, it, there, there's no exact list of how many books the man wrote. And that sounds unbelievable, but uh, the list that you and I were looking at is, is about 500 books. About, um, yeah, jeez. Let me just reemphasize that. 500 books. <laughs> <laughs> not all fiction, of course. Uh, most of them not fiction. But yeah. uh, the reason they don't know the exact number is because uh, he forgot he wrote some, to be honest. <laughs> jeez, how, did, how does that even happen? Can you imagine that? Writing so prolifically that you forget about whole projects that you've done? Yeah. So, jeez. When you, you know, these lists come from his, um, a lot come from his books. You know, in his books, he would list, um, I think in I, Osimov, the autobiography that I started and did not finish because it's enormous. Um, I think there's a list of the books in there. Jeez. But it's just, it's, it's incredible. If anything, the focus of this episode is being prolific. Yeah. That's, if there's the one thing you can learn from Isaac Osimov is, you are capable of more than you think you are. Yeah, and let's not forget that while he was doing all of this, he was a full-time professor of biochemistry over <laughs> in Boston. So, I mean, it, it's it's shocking how it, I, it it if you look back at it from that perspective, it almost it almost looks like the man never wasn't working on something, which I mean is a good lesson for all of us. I mean, if 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 any of us had a tenth the dedication that Isaac Asimov had to both science as well as science fiction, I mean, the world would just be a better place. Well, he's he was a full professor. He wrote five hundred books in his lifetime. He lived to uh, how old did he live to? I can't even remember. Seventies, I believe, uh, right? Yeah, his, his yeah, seventies. He he died in ninety two, I believe. So, and if, if I remember correctly, the last 10 years he was ill, so he couldn't write. Yeah. So, if you say he didn't start writing his books till he was 18, so we'll call that 20, knock off mm-hmm. 30 years, he wrote 500 books in approximately 40 years. Jeez. Um, but also, when you're looking at the, the books that he wrote, these science books, um, he wrote books on Shakespeare, um, mm-hmm. he had to be reading, too. Sure. <laughs> so so for every book he wrote he probably read 10 to 15 books so just process the time that he was spending reading alone not to mention the fact he was also the president of uh, the humanist society of america uh mm-hmm. how many other things he was involved with plus he was married somehow and, 
by the way, he was also a vice chair at Mensa. Uh, <laughs> let's not forget that. And he also, and you know, the the 500 books thing is impressive, but he also wrote 90,000 letters and postcards. Oh, my God. That is painful. And I mean, to look at it from, from the, that perspective, I mean, we all know the Dewey Decimal System, or at least anyone who grew up in our generation does, because we actually went to libraries and got books. But he has... He has published works in nine out of the ten categories of the Dewey Decimal System. That's insanity. Incredible. And think about the fact that you and I talked about this briefly. I imagine this is a man who never saw a minute of television, really. Yeah, I, I can't even. When? When would? When would he? There's just no time for consumption like that. He's always working or living. You know, like he's he's married, so obviously he had to spend some time with his wife. Um, you know, family is an important thing too. Uh, but just, I, I guess that, that what, what has been swelling in my head for the last, over the last month, and it goes along with me, um, putting my phone down and is how much time I waste on, um, these dipping into things, you know, as a, as some people have called it, you know, like, oh, I'm going to dip into Facebook right now. I'm going to dip into this. How much time we waste on those things that could be spent uh, writing or reading research to do writing or, you know, if you're not a writer, painting or playing music or even just being with your family and being in the world. Sure. And uh, I think that that has had, a, if it, more than anything, uh, that's the strongest influence that researching this episode has had on me. It has made mm-hmm. me reevaluate my life in that sense. Uh, you and I had talked about this on the phone before previously as well. Uh, I, I changed the whole dynamic of my, of my phone. I took all of those apps that you can just dip into like, Oh, here, here's a little tower defense game. Here's Twitter. And here's, I took all of those and I either deleted them off my phone or I buried them in a folder to where it would take effort for me to go to them. And everything that's on my home screen is either for collecting information Mm-hmm. Or is for uh, getting to something that will inspire, um, you know, for example, my music app is on there or um, my podcast app is on there. Things that, that I will use to, uh, I guess, to make other things is a good way to say it. Everything on the, on my home screen revolves around making something. Sure. You know, with, with Asimov's brain the way that it was... I'm really curious as to how he would have used the technology that we have at our disposal. Like, would he have been even more prolific? You know, because he seems like the kind of guy who just got really, really good at acquiring information. And that's that's a unique skill, you know, not not just the the skill, but the desire to continually learn. Like as much as we we like to think that we we're constantly evolving as humans, um, you know, most humans don't evolve gradually. They evolve chaotically. You know, they make changes when they need to as opposed to wanting to. And I think Asimov was the, 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 the polar opposite in the sense that he just constantly wanted to learn and constantly wanted to evolve and change. So I wonder with his brain what he would have done with the technology that we have access to. I feel like he either would have had no use for it because he'd already oiled his system and nailed it mm-hmm. into place the best it could be, or it would have actually reduced his productivity. You think so? Absolutely. Um, mm. When I, I think about, for example, um, the generation before us, like my mom, <clears throat> it took them a long time to adjust to, you know, like text messaging, for example. 
Sure. Um, but once they digest it, now if I were to walk into a room, there's a 80% chance that my mom's on her cell phone. She yeah. had no place for that in her life before. So all of that time that she had um, before is gone because now, you know, it's being eaten up by these little dippings in. And I feel like him being, uh, he's actually the generation before her. Uh, mm-hmm. If he had been sucked into that, it, I mean, there's no other other thing for it to do other than to suck up time from him. True. That makes sense. And it, it, this, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, I don't know if this lasted his whole life, but obviously a, a large chunk of his life, he wrote all his books on a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I imagine that a computer maybe could have saved him a little bit of time as far as editing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, if you can rip out 500 books in 40 years, what do you need to improve? But, you know, I think, I think, and you and I have had th- this discussion many times over the last few years, um, and even on previous versions of the podcast, um, how having something like a typewriter or pen and paper commits you to to what you're writing um and it it removes the the possibility of over editing um like, you know it was a, after a conversation we had had a couple of years ago i actually went to to writing permanently in pen and never using a pencil um just because i wanted to force myself to commit um and to remove the the the, the illusion of choice um and i think that asimov um as as you know, as a, as a person who was pro, as prolific as 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 he was, he had to have that ruthless discipline and that weird commitment um, in order to make sure that the projects got done. Right, and also something that he touches on briefly in the beginning of I Osimov is um, he's accused a lot in his career of being an uh, egotistical, and he admits yes he knows that he was really good. So that confidence. Is mm-hmm. also a huge part of it too. Of course, if you if you know that you're brilliant, you don't need to go back and edit that. You know, you can move forward. You can get that first draft ripped out because you know what you're saying is correct, and then just go sure. back and do some minor edits. Yeah, and I and I totally I I, I hate that criticism of of him and other artists like him too. Um, in that. I, it, it's always it's always the people who don't have what he has that are making those criticisms, um, and and it, it, there's almost there's almost a a a required humility in order to relate to a normal person that that irks people when they don't have that because it hurts their pride. They're working as hard as they can and they can't produce one percent of what this guy produces. Um, and I, I, you know, in in all the stuff that I read on Asimov, one of the things that really stuck out to me was how much he didn't like smart people. Um, and how, 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 for example, he was really, really reluctant, um, to be a member of Mensa in the first place, um, because he didn't, he, I, the quote was, um, that the, the, the organization was mostly brain proud and aggressive about their IQs. So as much as we'd like to, you know, as, as much as people said that he was arrogant, I actually think he was the opposite of an elitist. You know, he wrote books that, that he wanted normal people to read. And if not for the fact that, that, he had that mentality. I think a lot of his work would have would have been lost in in, in you know the, the the annals of intelligentsia forever. And so no, I, I I think those criticisms are not only not only you know unfounded but just just completely short sighted and stupid. <laughs> well, it's it's a matter. Of, it's these um, societally imposed ideas. You know, like for example, that the required humility um, because you're supposed to if you're brilliant, you're supposed to make everybody feel good about not being brilliant and 
I I can understand, you know, it is intimidating. It does suck. But at the same time, like, why? What's the importance of that? You know, there's a difference between um, is he knew what he was good at. And there's sure. a difference between that and being an asshole. Sure. And from all that I've heard, he was a nice guy. People liked mm-hmm. him. So he wasn't that. Um, but he, and it's like he says in the book, he says, uh, it's not that what I'm saying is not true. So it's not that he was bragging about things, you know, uh, bravado, uh, things that were not true. When he said, you know, like, I'm, uh, as a young child, I was very, very smart and I picked up things very fast. Is there anything wrong with saying that if it's true? No, absolutely not. You know, it's funny. I I find myself relating to Asimov a lot when it comes to how he was as a youth. And I think that's part of the reason why I was really excited to do this particular episode. Um, You know, a lot of people don't know that he he wasn't born in the U.S. You know, he was born in Russia and he came to the U.S. when he was, I think, three um, and grew up in Brooklyn. Um, But his parents were immigrants. Um, I mean, they spoke, I believe, uh, I, I'm going to get that wrong. They spoke Yiddish, Yiddish. Yiddish and English. That's right. Yeah, and they moved to the Bronx, and he taught himself to read at five. Yeah. Um, and I can relate to that. You know, my parents came over here as immigrants. They didn't know how to speak the language really, so I had to teach myself to read. Um, and I feel like the, you know a lot of the things that he says are things that I've said, and people people have kind of called me on the same thing. But I mean, I think most people who meet me will will generally say that i'm a reasonably nice guy you know i'm not an arrogant jerk but i also know what i'm capable of right you know and i think that that's something in a way that 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 concept of um this mock humility which let's be let's be honest um this imposed humility is mock humility Um, people pretending to be humble when they're not uh there's a difference if you're truly humble you're truly humble and that's Mm -hmm. that's a, a blessing in a in a in an individual as well um, mm-hmm. But it's, it shouldn't be a requirement of everyone, especially when it requires faking it. But this idea of uh, humility, of mock humility, gets in the way of art for some people. You know, if you're forced to pretend that you don't know what you're doing to make other mm-hmm. people feel better, eventually you're going to start believing that. Yeah. And it's, it's going to create some sort of um, block. And I think I think that... It's really important to uh, to not confuse the need um, for being a nice person with the need to denigrate yourself. You know what the tough part is 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 that it's really subtle, and I found myself doing this too. So it's not it's it, you know the the need for human beings to be you know, the, to to belong to something to to be social creatures is really strong of a drive, and I think. If you don't have the intestinal fortitude or the mental fortitude, and I think um, all of us don't at some point in our lives, then you really want to fit in. You know, I just I, I, I wouldn't talk to people about things that I was really interested in, like history or science or anything like that, because I felt like they would judge me for it. Um, I, you know, I'm over that now. Don't get me wrong. I'm an adult, so I don't I don't hold on to those those last vestiges of, of defense. But, you know, for me, it was definitely about fitting in. It was about it was about not intimidating people and not scaring them or not talking about things that they inherently have no interest in. So I get it. And, you know, I understand. I understand the 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 drive for it. And you're right. The mock humility does nothing but hurt the person who's who's faking it. You know, for me, I, I realized that. 
my my senses dulled, my my desire to learn dulled, um, my knowledge of these things or my interest in these things dulled over time because I just didn't I didn't allow myself to be stimulated by them and I didn't seek them out. So I definitely understand. I know where he's coming from. Plus, I think that there's a there's other problems with this mock humility as well. It it creates a barrier actually between people. Um, people are not being themselves, like you said. But then, for example, like when I did my first book, um, I, don't, I had always been kind of raised that when you were complimented, you you kind of skirted your way around a compliment. You didn't sure. you didn't really accept the compliment because that was egotistical to accept a compliment. So instead, you know, if somebody told you, you know, like, oh, your book is really good, be like, well, you know, there's parts I wish I could have done differently. There was always, you always had to knock yourself in some way. Ugh, we're all guilty of that. <laughs> and uh, I remember Sarah, my friend Sarah, taking me aside at one point and she said, stop doing that. So when, when people tell you that they like something that you did when they compliment the book, say thank you. Sure. Because when you deny it, like you're denying it, you're also denying them the gratification of, of what they've gotten from that book. Sure. Um, so in, in a way you're robbing other people of this opportunity to communicate with you because when, when somebody says, thank you, that's a conversation. Sure. And when you, when you put this mock humility up, you're ending the conversation or you're sure. preventing it from even starting. Um, so it's important to pay attention to that, especially I like, it takes a lot for me having grown up with that to outlearn that. Yeah, and I feel like we run, you know, we're constantly running from the specters of 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 our upbringing um, in that sense. So yeah, no, I, I was brought up in the or I was brought up in the same environment, which is funny because my parents were never like that. Um, you know, my parents were very much the, um, you know, whatever you do, you you you've done and you've accomplished it. You know, I, I think about who they are as people, and they came to this this country as as kids, basically 15 and 17 respectively. And they achieved incredible things. Um, they had me at that age too. So they were young, they were young adults in a land that they didn't know, um, with a kid and didn't speak the language and they were able to achieve fantastic things. So they've always been able to, to hold their heads high and be really proud of the things that they've accomplished. But the, the schools that I went to, the people that I, 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 I was taught by, the, the, the friends that I had, they all had this mock humility and the expectation of the mock humility. So I feel like I had this, this dichotomy, this, this constant tug between my parents who were ruthlessly confident and very, very smart people, um, and the, the pull of the, the general mass of, of humanity that, that needs you to relate to them, that needs you to, to, to be humble about, not even humble, but just to devalue the things that you do. And I think that that ultimately is the, the, the lesson for me is that when you do that, you devalue what you do. And I don't want to do that anymore. Right. And, and it's, it's a ridiculous thing because in, in reality, when it gets to that point, it's no longer about humility. It's actually about ego. Sure. You're at a certain point. You're you're no longer um, you're denigrating your own work not to make other people feel more comfortable. You're denigrating it because you want to not only be smart but you want to be likable. Yeah, you want to be liked. Sure, sure. So you're 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 setting an even more impossible thing. You're like I am perfect in every way, and you're not. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm not. Nobody listening to this is, and that's okay. We're human. Yeah. And that's how we relate to each other is is by our not only through our weaknesses but our strengths and understanding that those differences make us individuals. 
I just and I just I actually just finished this book by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that he says in there is is ego needs awards, you know ego ego needs the the praise, uh, but people who want to get things done what they focus on is accomplishment, sure not, not on credit, and and that's that's a huge thing for when you you so it's to, uh, for me to battle that mock humility is to understand is like say thank you, but you don't need to revel in the in in that part of it. You know, there's a difference there. And that's that's where the real humility, true humility comes from understanding that somebody appreciated something you did mm-hmm. and then talking to them, you know, becoming part of that conversation instead of keeping yourself out of it. And I think that uh, Isaac Asimov was accused of a lot of things, but I don't think that he was ever accused of being a poor communicator. In fact, his nickname was the great explainer of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Who gave him that nickname? Do you remember? I have a feeling everybody did. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. I mean, I, I always forget that, that uh, you know, the, the one thing that, that makes it really difficult for me to, to wrap my head around Asimov is the, the time in which he wrote these things. Um, you know, the, I, I, I didn't read his work until much, much later. I mean, obviously, he was, he was of a generation two back from mine. So I read most of his work when I was, you know, a young adult or, or a teenager. Um, and I just assumed that he was a contemporary writer because of how forward thinking most of his work was. But he wrote most of this stuff in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, long before technology was even close to what it was today. Right. And that's fascinating. <laughs> and in fact, that's one of the more incredible things about what he did. So um, as for when, when uh, Lamb says he wrote everything, he means uh, majority of the fiction. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of his nonfiction was written later in life. Um, actually... From the look of it, it, it was written consistently throughout, but he focused more on nonfiction later. But uh, one of the things that's really incredible about what he did is, like he's, like you said, um, he wrote this fiction earlier, and then at the end of his life, he was able to write, I think it was two or three books. Mm-hmm. Um, and not exactly at the end of his life, but near the end of his life, later after he'd written all this other stuff, write two or three books that made every piece of fiction he wrote tied together into yeah. one storyline. Unbelievable. <laughs> so, I mean, not not only I don't know any other writer who has dedicated every book they've written to one single world that they're all connected. Um, I mean, obviously, you could probably say that about um, George R. R. Martin because I don't – I could be wrong. I don't know if he wrote anything before Game of Thrones. Maybe he did. Um but you know these people who write these long epic series, like um, what's his name? Tolkien. Jordan. What was it? Yeah. The guy's name? The Wheel of Time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget. It was I like forget. like nine epically long books, and then the dude died before he finished it, and his son had to write the tenth one. Um, sure. There's people like that, but I mean, somebody who's written this many fiction books. I think there's about actually I don't even know between twenty and thirty. Um, yeah. And they're all tied together that if you start with this one and you go all the way through here, you know, like here's the foundation to the trilogy, uh, to the, here's the prequel to the trilogy, here's the foundation trilogy, you know, here's the Elijah Bailey series. All of these things are connected and facts that are stated in one book are true from another book. Um, and to be able to keep all of that in your head. <laughs> Especially to write those books, you know, decades later. I mean, obviously he can go back and read them, but he had to understand what he meant, 
where he was going with this, what connected sure. them. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible, just uh, incredible thought process, even more than an accomplishment, just to be capable of that. And I mean, I think about where you are with Charlie, for example, you know, and, and, and with the number of times that you've 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 evolved that character and how dramatically that evolution has taken place. Um, and then I think about um, Asimov and the entire Foundation series, the entire Empire series, where it's 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 not just one character. It's not just one one group of people. It's an entire galaxy of people. And he stays so true to the cultures within each of the respective. Uh, I, I, it's it's just mind boggling how how broad of a, a how broad of a thought process he has to have in order to keep it all straight. It's unbelievable. And there's I think it's worth saying that as well, um for a lot of science fiction writers, as particularly science fiction writers in in the fifties, um when it was in its big boom, um there was a hokiness to science fiction. And and not sure. not to criticize it, I mean that was kind of what was fun about it in some ways. You know, like the original Star Trek series, come on. It's <laughs> it's not Breaking Bad. Let's put it this way. Um, sure, but it's that was part of the fun of it, you know. Um, but there's Asimov was different than all of those guys in the sense that um, there's never a moment where you're reading something of his and going, "Well, that's that's a little silly." So going back to your point that he wrote this stuff decades and decades before, and it was so forward thinking that much of it, in some way, in some form, has come true is is incredible and it's it's all rooted in this uh, in a realism and i think that's what drives his books more than anything for me is that you're not um having fun reading a world you're actually becoming part of what in some ways is a very very real world um everything in it is concrete everything in it is uh held together with stiff joints you know, there's there's not a looseness and a. It doesn't require much suspension of disbelief to step into an Asimov book, sure. Because he's so in command of every detail. And you know, not only not only is his stuff so forward thinking that it's applicable to a lot of the things that have come come to pass today in both science and technology and culture, for that matter. But I think that. Especially the the iRobot series, and this is the reason why I like the robot series so much personally, is that it's tackling questions that we haven't even asked yet. Um, you know, it, it's it, for anyone who who fears the the trajectory of technology or wants to not fears that's the wrong way to put it. Um, but if you look at um, um, something like Terminator, for example, and and the idea that the world is going to be taken over by robots, or like even the Matrix, for example, if you if you want a real taste of what society, the, the guesstimations on what society and culture will do with the advancement of technology, read the iRobot series. There's there's a reason why that series holds a special place in my heart, and it's because it's the one I read first by Asimov. So for me, um, it's the one that got me hooked, and it's the one that got me thinking much bigger about what technology was capable of and what, what human consciousness was capable of as it's evolving, too. It's really, really fascinating. Well, plus with all these, um, we have like you you mentioned you know there's all this ai that's coming out now plus there's all all these robots that are actually being built across the world right now they're trying to improve robots trying to make them more um usable by the average person and in this reality in this real science in this real world 
over and over again, anytime you see one of these articles, they're going to mention Isaac Asimov's rules of robotics, his three, yeah. <laughs> his three rules of robotics. We're talking about a fiction writer who wrote rules that real scientists and journalists writing about real science quote consistently. Let's not forget that these rules were written 70 years ago, by the way. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. To, to be able to create something fictional that becomes a part of the real world in a way that influences the real world. I mean, that's the goal of any writer, right? To change the world. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look it up right now. I think we should probably say what the three rules of robotics are. Oh, the three rules of robotics. Yeah. While you look for that, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the robot series. Cause I, I, I can't really express enough the importance of that, ro the robot series. Um, and for anyone who wants, at, at least for me, um, you know, when I, when I was, when I was thinking about this podcast, um, and how I was going to approach it, um, you know, Chad, for example, is, is at least I, I'm, I'm guessing on this, by the way, Chad, so I'm sorry ahead of time, but <laughs> I feel like you're, you're more of a short story guy, um, than I am. Like, I don't really like the medium that much. I mean, I, I enjoy short stories, but they kind of have to be spectacular in order to, to, to get, to get hold, um, with me as a, a, a reader, um, and the robot series is probably the only real exception to that rule. Um, it's not that they are short, short stories. They're reasonably long. Um, but they are all such incredible morality tales. Um, you know, morality tales for, for a modern age, um, in which we're dealing with technology in such, uh, in some cases, a very dramatic way. You know, technology is, has, has essentially, um, wormed its way into every aspect of our, our living life. And I think that, 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 the robot series lends itself to those questions in a very real way, not just for us as people, but for the technology when it comes to um, the point in which the people developing the technology or the technology itself has to make choices. And I think that the the ability to see that far ahead philosophically and culturally is just beyond the fact that he was a brilliant scientist. He was also an amazing philosopher. And and I think that the, the, the value of what he brings to us when it comes to the question of technology cannot be undervalued. And anyone who is in science or anyone who's in science fiction um, who hasn't read Asimov is is doing themselves a horrible disservice by not doing that. Yeah, I, I feel like even the average person should – there's at least probably two, three books that you should definitely read of his. Um, the, speaking of threes, the, the laws of robotics, three laws of robotics. Number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey orders given by human beings except where such orders conflict with the first law. Number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. And then later in the series, he, uh, in the series, the humanity discovers that they need to create what is the zeroth law, which is one that supersedes all three. And a yeah. robot may not harm humanity or by an inaction allow humanity to come to harm. And why are these important? Why do people talk about these all the time? So going back to your example of uh, Terminator, you know, a world taken over by robots is this big fear, right? Well, that's what we all, um, to some degree, we all as in society as a whole, fear about AI, you know, that eventually it will become smart and realize that um, it doesn't need us. 
what these are rules were created to prevent is things like that that um okay fine you can a robot can realize that a that it is better than a human and that uh it could take over the earth but if the first law is built into its programming it cannot harm a human being or the zeroth law it cannot harm humanity so therefore it has to allow humanity to exist um that's why these things are talked about because they're at at their core they're philosophical questions about what is this thing that we're creating and how can it become part of our society it's, sure. it's philosophical and sociological and that's i think that's the power of having someone who is as brilliant and um has as many degrees as Isaac Asimov had and who was also a good writer put together in the same human being uh, there's one in particular. I, I'm going to track it down and get it to you. Um, but there's there's one particular story within um, the robot series that talks about a robot creating a religion. Um, and at the very core of it are these three laws of robotics. And it realized at some point that in order to work as efficiently as possible, it needed other machines to follow this religion because humans were not – um, efficient or, 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 or smart enough to be able to run, um, this, I've, I've got to get it to you. Um, but it realized that it needed to create that culture within its own, um, society of robots to save humanity. And it's such a fascinating exploration of that. Um, I've, I've got to get that to you. It's unbelievable. His, I mean, to be able to do what he did just in a short story, I mean, uh, just even the beginnings, you know, for example, if anybody has seen the movie iRobot, I just want to tell you that has nothing to do with Isaac Asimov. Nope. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Uh, in fact, the, the story behind that movie was it was written with another title. And uh, this happens in movie studios all the time. They wanted to make a adaptation of uh, Isaac Asimov's iRobot. At the same time, they had optioned this script that was about robots. So instead of doing both, they decided to pretend that this script that was written about robots was Isaac Asimov's iRobot. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, they did throw in a little bit here and there to make it almost seem like that they had read Isaac Asimov. Yeah, they, there, was, there were a few nods here and there. Was the, uh, I, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't have hated the movie if I didn't know that they had, had, had done that. I mean, he, Isaac Asimov is such one of my, my longstanding heroes that I, I just knew that thing was just going to be a pile of garbage. <laughs> his, most of his works have not been made into movies. The, the only one that I can think that has been pretty honorably made into a movie was Bicentennial Man. Oh, yeah, true. That is pretty true to the actual story. Um, well, other I mean, than that, they're... they're there are nods here and there. Um, like I think one show that we both love, um, Star Trek The Next Generation, has nods to it. I think the Q Continuum, for example, is is a lot like the Foundation um, in the Foundation books. Um, and I also think, you know, there's mention, mentions of a positronic brain and data and stuff like that, too. So there are nods here and there. Well, they say but his yeah. name several times, too. They say Asimov's yeah. name. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Gene Roddenberry was a huge Asimov fan. Yeah, and for like for my uncle who was um, science who was he's still alive, uh, who is a huge science fiction fan, uh, to him Isaac Asimov was number one, and the only person that came after him was uh, Gene Roddenberry. 
Sure. Those were those were his two guys, or are his two guys. Um, I say were because no, those neither of those guys are alive. Um, it's it, it to be clear uh, for those of you who are listening to this that are not into science fiction. This is the science fiction you should read. Yeah. Because this is the science fiction science fiction. This is the this is the literature of science fiction. This is the Shakespeare of science fiction. This is where where science fiction um went from being a pulp medium into becoming an art form. Um with like we said philosophical, sociological um there was there was a point where um Kurt Vonnegut was um where he had, was quoted as saying something along the lines, I won't, obviously won't get it exact, that there, were, there weren't really many philosophers left in the world. Science fiction writers were our philosophers. Sure. They were saying the things that um, people needed to hear, that people needed to think about. And if you look at a lot of these writers, there, that generation of Asimov's writers, um, Asimov, um, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke, Clark. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you look at these guys, what they wrote, became a reality not because of coincidence but because the fact that they wrote it made us want it and we made it uh every almost everything apple does is gene roddenberry sure. it, at its core apple is slowly creating the enterprise yeah <laughs> one panel at a time that's true <laughs> there's there's a reason that siri has a female voice because they were thinking of the computer on star trek um these these people created the world that we're living in in so many ways um so it's 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 easy to put off science fiction as this you know pulp genre um you know to bulk it up there with like comic books or whatever but comic books are very serious business nowadays so uh, but at the same time what what we're talking about is all of these stories at their core science fiction good great science fiction is a metaphor sure we're we're placing a story in the future. We're placing it on another planet to put the mirror on us. To let us see things that we can't see because we're too close to it. What does what does Isaac Asimov have to say about humanity? That's why it's important to read someone like Isaac Asimov. Well, not only that, but from it's it's not even philosophical in 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 a lot of ways it's it's practical you know one of the things that i really remember from the early osmos stuff i read from the foundation series for example was the the idea of a new form of mathematics um that was developed for the foundation um uh, series called uh, psychohistory and that's the 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 concept that that human actions can be predicted um sociologically over time in order to help predict the future and i in a lot of ways as 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 trite as it may sound to draw a parallel in this sense, most of what I understand about marketing comes from that. You know, most of what I understand about the behaviors of large groups of people comes from what I read or, or at, at the very least, my ability to extrapolate what people can do from a business perspective comes from having read a lot of the Foundation series. It's amazing how, how many of those parallels actually draw to, to life as we live it now. Well, plus, uh, like, for example, did you, did you ever make it through that book that I loaned you? The robots no, I and... did. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, so the, there's a book. Uh, it's Caves of Steel, Naked Sun, and I can't remember the third one. It's a three. It's you know, it's an after. It's an anthology put together after he died, or maybe while he was still alive. I don't know. After he wrote the book separately, and each of those stories in some way deals with something that 
well, it's something we should be thinking about today. Um, Caves of Steel is about this idea. It's about a lot of things. But one of the things is that people live inside of caves in the ground. Um, obviously, they're very fancy caves. You know, they're not living in stone. They're, you know, they're mechanized and um, it's like the inside of a spaceship. But they're living in the ground because we've destroyed the atmosphere. That's something we that he wrote in... I'm not sure exactly what year he wrote that book. Like you said, the 50s, 60s, maybe even the 70s. That is a reality now. That we're moving to the point where um, scientists have said that in 30 years there will be places on the planet that you cannot stand outside when it's daytime. Because the the radiation will destroy you. Um, these these things are a reality. and, and uh, Or in the book that I've mentioned on the show before where... Um, people only talk to each other in holograms. They don't actually meet in the flesh. Uh, the only time they ever see a human being in the flesh is once a year when they see a doctor. Um, when we, Every time we're holding our phones and text messaging each other from across the table, mm-hmm. we're, we're stepping closer to that world. Um, the, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's incredible to really try to understand what this man did. He was, you know, he's just seen as a science fiction writer, but he was so much more than that. Uh, And going back to the thing of the reason he was called the great explainer of everything is because he was able to take these insane concepts that people could not digest and create books for children and <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do interviews and and be able to explain things in a way that people go, "Oh, I get it. Okay, that makes sense." Sure. And and that was his true brilliance more than anything, more than his writing, more than um his science, more than all of these was his ability to digest and regurgitate it. You know, like he's like the he's like the mother bird, chewing things up and then spitting them out for the baby birds so that you know pieces that they can digest. Uh, to your point, I mean, I, I read most of the the robot series when I was ten, eleven, twelve years old, and I understood it then. You know, they they, they were they were basically fables. They were Aesop's fables with robots in and in space. You know, um, so so the, the, that 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 that's such a lasting testament to me of the man's brilliance is his ability to take something so inherently complicated and make it so dramatically simple um, and not only make the concept itself simple, but to also incorporate the meaning of the concept, you know, what it means for society and what it means for, for me as a person um, and wrap it all into that too and make it so that I could understand it at 11 years old. That's just unbelievable. It's, it's, it's really incredible, especially when you consider the fact, like you said, that he grew up in a um, non-native English speaking household. Um, he never learned Russian, which is a testament to his parents to choosing not to speak Russian, even though later he kind of wished they would because he wanted to learn it. Yeah. Um, but he grew up and taught himself to read at, at an incredibly young age, like you said, five. And something about that process just made him voracious in his learning, but he never lost touch with that child with yeah. that and and i think that's uh, this is supposition on my part but i think that's why he his whole life was dedicated to that idea of taking this information and making sure that other people 
could understand it because that's sure. all he wanted was to understand it. Sure. And and given that he had to take these incredibly complex uh, concepts, you know, I, I can't imagine that his parents really knew what to pick for him to read when they were uh, when he was that young. I mean, you know, what, what do you read to a five year old? What do you what? How does a, a five year old learn to read? You know, I, I look at the parallels in my own life and my parents being immigrants, you know, they had no idea um, what was right for me when it came to, to, to my reading list. So they never read me kids books. You know, um, I got my hands on things like, um, you know, Jack London very early on. I, I, and when I'm say early on, I mean like seven or eight years old, you know, I, my, I accidentally bought a complete works of William Shakespeare, um, when I was 10 years old at a used book sale at a library and my parents didn't know any better. So I was reading Macbeth at 10. Um, so I feel like, his ability to simplify comes from his need to have simplified for himself in order to understand those concepts. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it became a lifelong thing, a lifelong desire of his to take these incredibly lofty concepts and make them so that every person could understand them. And I think that, um, I don't know if he was conscious of that, but it's definitely, it was his purpose. It's, it's the purpose sure. he ended up serving. And I think that it serves us all to understand to some degree what our purpose is as as not only as human beings, but in specifically uh, in reference to this podcast as creators. I mean, like uh, we say in the show, these are studies in creativity. What are we learning about Isaac Asimov that we can apply to ourselves as creative people? Number one, that you're more capable of any you're capable of more than you believe you are. If he can write 500 books, you can probably write 10. You're, or one. <laughs> yeah. You're completely capable of that. And there's nothing stopping you but yourself. But other things is what is your purpose? What is it that you want more than anything to achieve? And how are you using what you create to do that? And I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, Lamb. Just you don't have to live by this for the rest of your life. But if I were to ask you that question right now, which I am, what would your answer be? What specifically, what is it that I want to achieve as an artist? Yeah, or as a human that you're using your art to achieve. Oh, man. Oh, that's that is a tough one. Right. It is. And I feel like it's while you think about that, I'm going to um, wax poetic for a minute here. Yeah, thank you. Give, I, I'm going to need some time on that one. <laughs> go, go as crazy as you want on that. I'm going to need some time. <laughs> this is this. This is not a new concept. Uh, this idea. It's. If you read enough about marketing, you read enough about making businesses, uh, you read a book like um, Simon Sinek's Start With Why um, or Marty Neumeier's Zag. Um, the concept here is that you cannot create something, you cannot achieve goals unless you know your purpose, unless you, you know, what what is your business? What is your art? What Why are you doing it? You know, Simon Sinek says if you start with why, then everything else comes in, into place because why is what holds everything together. Why do we make this? If you can answer that, then you can figure out the what and then the how. Um, most people do it backwards. We start with the what. What do I want to make? What do I want? No. Why do you want to make? Then when you understand why, then you'll know what. And for uh, Isaac Asimov, what he wanted to create came after his why. His why was, I, I, I love science. And because I love science, I want to make other people understand science. I want to make it so that other people can understand science. Okay, what do I need to make to do that? Books. Books are the way to do it. That's how I learned it. Books are the way to do it. How? Well, 
I can write books of explanation, nonfiction books, and I can write science fiction novels. And now you have his whole career. And I think it's important to take the time to digest that idea and to really apply it to yourself. If you are going to be a creator, if you are going to do things, know why you're doing it and always keep an eye on that why. And if the why changes, the what's in the house change too. So huh. it's, it's, it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves continually. And if you guys haven't read Start With Why by Simon Sinek, put that on the to read list as well. It's a brilliant book and it's applied to any field that any human being can take on. Somebody, a, a quarterback for a NFL team could read that book and get value out of it. Um, how's it coming, Lamb? <laughs> I, I think I've got it. Um, and I think it's, it's regardless of how many twists and turns it's taken throughout the course of my life, I think the goal has always kind of been the same. Uh, it's an interesting question in that it makes you ask yourself what your core drive has been. Um, and, and most of your life, it's it's subconscious. So I guess for me, um, you know, I was having this long conversation with Crystal yesterday about about how uh, I'm not going to bring religion into this. I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> I thought about it, um, but but I guess the 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 overriding theme is that there are certain things that human society and humans in general do that stunts their ability to grow or evolve as as individuals and as a culture. Um, and I think that for me, it's always been about freeing people up from the preconceived notions about what they think their lives can be or should be or what they're capable of. And I think that's part of the reason why I do this podcast. Um, it's part of the reason why I play golf. It's part of the reason I teach golf. Um, it's part of the reason why I, I, I liked doing you know, workshops and I like teaching is because I want people to realize that nothing is impossible. Um, that nothing is, is outside of their scope of, 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 of capability if they allow themselves to think beyond what society or what they've created for themselves as expectations. So yeah, I guess, I guess that for me is it is to, to make people realize that they're capable of anything, make them realize that they're capable of more and not in some chewy granola hippie kind of way. Um, you know, not, I, I'm not saying this in a peace pipe around a fire kind of way. I'm saying this in a very real, very capable kind of way. Um, in the sense that if you really want to do it, then map out the steps that will get you to what it is that you want to do and then just start doing it. And, and I, I think, you know, back to, to the golf analogy for me, for example, um, I think I constantly test myself on this throughout the course of my life. Um, you know, when I was when I was a writer, I I, I I challenged myself to write a certain number of things, to get published, to write a certain style, to be able to do a certain thing. When it came to golf, for example, I I, I set a goal for myself, and then I I tried my best to to reach and exceed beyond that goal as quickly as possible. Um, and so for me, it's about it's really about showing people how to 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 be dedicated towards something, to, to to work towards something, and to realize that that the only limits that that exist are the ones that you impose for yourself, and anything else is just is just you not wanting to put in the time or the work necessary in order to be whatever it is that you wanted to be or do whatever it is that you wanted to do. Exactly, and to be honest, my answer is almost exactly the same. <laughs> That's why we're doing this podcast, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, for me, like a lot of it, um, a lot of the focus is specifically on action, that first action, at least in the last few years. 
I see so many people that want to do things, that want to achieve things. They say, you know, I want to write this, I want to do this, but they're not taking any action. Sure. And it's it, it's fear. It is. It's 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 this fear of imperfection in reality is what it is. Uh, you know, like we've talked about this many times before on and off the podcast. The idea of the first draft, um, the problem people can't get through the first draft, and this is a this is I'm specifically talking about writing, but use it as a metaphor for anything because everything has a first draft. Um, call it a prototype if you prefer. Uh, the first draft is the only purpose of the first draft is to get to the end. And most people never make it to the end of the first draft. They don't make it to the end of the first draft because there's this image of what they want in their head. And because it's in their head, it doesn't exist in the tangible world. It is liquid. It can shapeshift. So every time a problem comes up, it can tweak a little bit and a little bit. So it always stays perfect. But the moment you put it on that page, the moment you try to bring it into the world, limitations are upon it. Sure. It has a physical form. It exists. And that's what people fear when it comes to creating. Um, when it, bringing something into the world is that they know that once those limitations are on it, it's not going to be that perfect amorphous blob that's inside of their head. Um uh, but what they don't realize is that until you bring it into the world, you can't actually shape it. It, it. As it exists there, it doesn't exist because it is nothing. Um, so for me, it's always about that first draft, getting people to, you want to do that, do it. If you say you do that first draft and you're never able to edit that book, at least you got that first draft out. The next time you do something else, you might go a step further. You might go a step further. But if you don't take that first step, you're not bringing anything into the world. You know, this is this year, politics are a huge, huge thing with this election. And I'm not going to go into that. I'm just going to say that as simply as possible. People in this election have talked a lot about change. They want things to change. They want this. They want that. Until you do things, until you act, nothing changes. You're just you know what? Floating. Go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. You, you know, you know what I hold on to through all of these things, like the the examinations of of fear and all that kind of stuff. I think I think the biggest thing for me, the the biggest thing that I had to get over, and I think the the, the biggest thing that most people have to get over is something that I didn't really realize until very recently. Um, you know, I was working with uh, Remy, who is a, a mutual friend of ours, um, and I'm helping him build a golf swing, and it is a torturous thing for him. Uh, because he's grown up his whole his whole life as an athlete. He's also a very, very smart guy. He's run his own businesses. He's a very successful, smart guy, but he's terrible at this. He's terrible at golf. Can't hit the golf ball to save his life. And and you know, he's he's early on, so you know, obviously there's 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 a lot of growing for him to do in order for him to get good at it. But the thing that I keep thinking when I think of of, of the process with him is it's okay to fail, but it's not okay to give up. And I think that that's that's the thing that I, I I will I will take with me through these experiences, the things that I've learned with with myself and the things that I've learned teaching other people is you can fail often. You can fail all the time. You can write that first draft and it could be a piece of garbage, but you can't give up. You got to write a second one. You got to write a third one and a fourth one. Same thing with the golf swing. You got to hit another ball and another ball and another ball. And sooner or later, if you have the will you will you will make it. You will achieve it. You'll pull off whatever it is that you wanted to do, if you don't give up. 
And nothing, nothing ever has been achieved but through failure. Sure. There is nothing that has been done that hasn't included a failure. So it, if you're avoiding a failure, you're avoiding this fear of, of, of imperfection, you're avoiding living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> life, life is screwed up and life is wonderful. It's both. It's not one or the others. You got to get out of that binary mindset. And I think that that's, it, it, it's like this slave mentality that people put themselves into. And it, it's, it's of no use. And no. look at somebody like Isaac, Isaac Asimov. Like I said, do you, when he sat down at the typewriter, I don't think he ever said, hmm, is this book worth writing? No, he never said that. He's like, I have a book. I'm going to write it. And he put it out into the world. If people didn't read it and didn't think it was of value, that was the choice to be made after it was created. But he didn't make that decision before it was created. So we can't make decisions about what something is or whether it deserves to exist before it exists, with the exception of, you know, humanity killing robots. We should probably think about that first. <laughs> and maybe electing the wrong person. Those are things we should think about first. But as far as creating, just make. Just make stuff. It's important. <laughs> I, I feel like I, f I feel like that you know like for me maybe even there, there's a, a zero with law of creativity for me is in the sense that I want people to make things because when people make things the world is a better place sure uh, creativity I say this over and over again creativity is generous by nature you can't help but be a good generous person through the act of creation it, it makes it I don't know. It's if you make a movie, and then you go see another movie, and the movie is kind of bad, you're a little bit kinder to that person because you know what the process of making a movie is. Sure. Uh, it just makes you understand that you know, like we we hear people release horrible albums all the time, yeah. And but you never hear other people other than Kanye talking bad about other artists. You know, oh, that, sure. that album that they did was awful. You know, you see people like uh, Slash, for example, will say, hanging out with somebody like, uh, I don't know, like Jessica Simpson. Wow, that was out of nowhere. Um, and you go, that's weird. But no, it's not really weird because they probably know more about each other than we know about them. You know, sure. Because they, they make the same kind of art in the sense that they make music. They put something out there for the world to judge. Um, it's not even that their music is similar or even that they're doing music that's similar. It's that they're creating things and putting it into the world. And that vulnerability of putting something into the world can't help but tie those people together. So if we're all creators, then we're tied together through that vulnerability. It's funny that you say that. I never really thought about that till now. Um, you know, I, I never really consider any book that I've read as bad. I may not like it, but I, I, I think that because – the more I write, the more I realize how just monumentally difficult that process is. Most of the time, I assume it's me that I'm in the wrong place or that I wasn't paying attention enough that the, yeah. the, the book isn't flawed. I was flawed while I was reading it. Like Don Quixote. I did not like that book. It's considered one of the greatest things ever written. I didn't like it. I think maybe I didn't pay attention enough. I don't put it on Cervantes. I put it on me. 
<laughs> it's funny. I, I not to draw the parallel, but to definitely draw the parallel is I just rewatched The Princess Bride the other day uh, for the first time in like eight years. And I watched that movie when I was younger and thought it was the stupidest movie that I ever, I'd ever seen. Um, but I realized now that in, in watching it just, uh, you know, last week that I was finally in the right mindset and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> That's why I think the, going back to art is so important. Rereading books who, you know, we've talked about it before with Catcher in the Rye. Who yeah. knows, you know, like just think about you as a person and then think about who you were 15 years ago. Jeez. You're, you're the same person, but you're not the same person. You could have a conversation with that person and disagree. Totally. You know? and, and that there's that much difference. And all of those versions of ourselves, they don't die. And they don't evolve into the person that we are. They all exist in our brain. We're living with all these hundreds of thousands of versions of ourselves existing in our brain. And one pops up at one point and one pops up at another point. All of these exist inside of us. So we're at war with it. But we have to accept the fact that it's a different person approaching this art. You have to give yeah, it and there, and there, and there are times where subconsciously you create a person that you need in order to, to survive the life that you currently have. Like I know, I know for, for a period of time there, I, I created a very specific version of myself in order to deal with emotional trauma. And, and you know, they, they, that person I'd absolutely hate. I, I probably, you know, looking back at who that person was, I, I detested some of the choices that that version of me made, but I, but I can't, I can't help but also understand why that person needed to exist in the time that that person did. So no, I totally, but that person will always be a part of me now. I can't, sh I can't shy away from the idea that that that's inherently a part of who I am now as a person. I know that I'm capable of that now. And I know that that person, even despite the fact that I didn't like them that much was a very necessary part of who I was in order to survive what my situation was. Well, it's like what Nietzsche said, man can endure anyhow, given the proper why. You know, you can you can live through anything given the right reason, and you can become anything given the right reason. People think that they're not capable of horrible things, but put in the right situation, they are. And that's yeah. what ties us all together. We're not all different people in the sense we're all the same person, but we're living with different versions of that person. And I, th I think that an exercise that I discovered recently that it's like I talked about, I've been focusing a lot about positivity, um, trying to you know, not think negative thoughts so that my back doesn't get tense and I'm not in pain, but also to become a happier person. Because sure. I, I realized that as I've gotten older, um, this idea of happiness has kind of slipped away from me, that I that I exist um, almost in this like animalistic state where this is what I do and this is how I react. But I don't really um, find pleasure in many things. So I've been trying to rediscover ways to find pleasure and to be happy, you know, so that I can live many, many more years without uh, completely dissolving into a cloud of nothing. And one of the things that I've discovered that's really interesting is think about this. When you're creating something, um, say you're doing a drawing. When you're done with that drawing, instead of looking at it as you now and criticizing it, go back to the a version of you that was learning how to draw. Remember that person and let that version of you look at what you just did. Because that version of you, that 10-year-old, that 6-year-old with the crayon that looks at the thing you just drew is going to have their mind blown. The fact <laughs> that they're capable of doing that 
it's almost like taking a travel, you know, traveling in time and talking to a former version of yourself. You don't need to do that because all these versions of us exist inside of us. We never lose these. You know, that's what's in all the backstorage of our mind is our life and uh, the different versions and different impulses that we've had and different emotions that we've had. They all exist in there. So dig into those and, and learn to appreciate what you're capable of now. So instead of going into something with doubt, go into it with enthusiasm. Be like, I have worked for 30 years at drawing and this is how far I've come. And it's, it's, a, it's an incredible exercise. It really is if, with writing, with anything. I mean, like even, you know, like with golf, Lamb. Think about the kid who first picked up that golf club. When you go out and you are at the driving range, give that kid a minute to watch what you're doing. You know, it's funny that you say that because um, I, I think that, that golf has actually taught me to do that very, very well. Um, golf is probably the most uh, – it, it's the most Asimov I've ever gotten in my life um, in the sense that I know exactly how hard it's been. And I think a lot of it is because of how 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 ruthlessly dedicated I was to it. Um, I realize exactly how hard it's been. I realized um, exactly what steps I needed to take to get there, and I know exactly what I'm capable of. Like I, I realize I'm a pretty decent golfer, but I also know very clearly what it is that I need to do next in order to become that much better. And there's a ruthless discipline that comes along from it um, that 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 makes it so that I, I I've learned this in other parts of my life. Um, and yeah, so I do take that, that backward glance quite a bit. I, I take stock of how far I've come and I, I, I'll, I'll stand there and I'll smack my eight iron and I'll think of, um, you know, those first early days. Uh, and I think it's helpful that I teach too as well. So I think, um, I think this is a good lesson for, for most other people is that, you know, if you're really, really good at something, try to share it, try to teach it, try to show other people what, what, what joy or what benefits they can get out of it. And in doing so, you remind yourself of how much you got out of it and how important it was to you and how, how, how special it is that you can, you can get good at something or that you can, you can value something to that degree or create something even. And that's the Asimov lesson, right? Absolutely. He, he could have kept all the science that he learned to himself. Instead, he wrote over 500 books. Good God. <laughs> I mean, that's about as generous as you can get. I mean, the guy got as close to opening up a vein and pouring it into somebody's mouth as you possibly can get. Jeez. I mean, you, you think about the, 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 the effect that he has on science and society and how many – I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Um, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, read enough Asimov. Like read the Foundation series. You know, Read, read the Robot series. Read the Empire series. Um, read a bunch of the short stories. And then go back and think about every piece of science fiction you've ever read or watched since, the, since Asimov um, wrote those. And you'll see how – deep and dramatic of an influence he's had on everything ever created in the world of science. And that's kind of one of the most beautiful things about science fiction as a genre. A lot of genres, you know, they there isn't this um, interplay between uh, books like there is with science fiction, books, movies, um, comic books even. Uh, for example, you know, it's it's not seen as a bad thing to talk about a positronic brain, even though Asimov created that. It's not sure. seen as a sin in science fiction to, to use one of Asimov's theories or to use sure. one of Arthur C. Clarke's series, uh, um, ideas. It's not seen as a bad thing. Like, for example, I was just watching um, – oh, oh, I was playing Fallout 4 yesterday, the video game. 
Nice. And there's a part where when you're in the Institute, they're making these synths, which are essentially robots, um, and they're splayed out in this circle, um, like uh, Da Vinci's sketch of man. It's splayed out, and then they dip them into this thing to make their skin, right? Well, if anybody's been watching HBO's Westworld, they did exactly the same thing in making the robots in that show. And it's actually a nod to that game. There, I, I, read, I read an article um, where the creator of that show listed a bunch of things that influenced that show. And on that list was Fallout 4. So oh. that's one of the things that I love about science fiction and why I wish I probably read more of it is that, you know, it's like Austin Kleon says, steal like an artist. This over over here, I want to use that because I can make something new if I use that piece. Okay, use that piece. Don't be afraid to borrow. Don't be afraid to steal. You know, they just give credit where you steal from. Yeah, I, I love that book. It still sits on my uh, it, it sits on my my bedside table pretty much perpetually. I love that book. Yeah, anybody that's another book. I feel like uh, <laughs> at this point we might have to put together a blog entry of. Books that you should probably read in the next year. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, at least as, as at least as a creative, um, if if you're intending on doing anything creative, there are certain books that I I can't say they'll they'll influence you necessarily, but they'll they'll inspire you and they'll give you the right tools to to influence. Um, right. If that if that makes any sense. And actually, before we end this, I think it's another change that we haven't mentioned yet is. Um, because of switching to Fireside, our main website is on the Fireside site, um, which doesn't have a blog because they're already doing enough hosting. So we've actually, we haven't um, completely done it yet, but we have created a publication in Medium. So we're going to be using Medium for blogging. So if you go to randombadassery.com, which will take you to the Fireside site, you will see a link to Medium. And if you follow us on Medium, then you'll be able to see the blog entries. If you're following us on social media, we'll put up the blogs there as well. Um, we just I just had a crazy... I downloaded the Dashboard app for Twitter, which, uh -huh. is, which is essentially... I think it's made for business. Um, but it gives you an ability to see things that a personal Twitter account doesn't. Like, you can create um, custom search timelines for, like, you know your business name or in our case, our podcast name. Yeah. And I discovered something that I haven't even told you about yet. I discovered that there have been people posting our links to our podcast episodes for like six months that we didn't know about because what? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have, well, we didn't have, uh, it wasn't linking to our Twitter handle. So it wasn't showing up in the timeline. So when I put uh -oh. in random badassery as a search term, I found about 40 posts of, stuff that we had made whoa <laughs> and i actually literally just had somebody tweet me yesterday and ask me when the next episode was being made so i wish i remember that person right now their name but to that person you know who you are you asked me when it was coming and i said soon and when i said soon i meant tomorrow which is today <laughs> so that's uh what's going on in our world Tomorrow is today. That's that's actually a pretty good. That's that's a pretty good quote, actually. Um, 
to 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 kind of wrap things up here. Tomorrow is today. I feel like if Asimov were alive today, he'd say something like that. <laughs> I think that you should say it as a commercial broadcaster, and then we will end with that. And for all of you listening out there for us, tomorrow is today. <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, we there was one thing that we did forget to do. Uh, we've made it a point to kind of put the person that we're going to talk about in the next uh, podcast in this previous episode. So um, I guess for the next one, uh, both Chad and I are going for yet another one of our heroes, of which we have many. Um, and the next one is going to be Nick Cave. So tune in.